Good morning. I'm glad you're with us. I wish I could see you. Um, I hope that you're awake and got you a nice cup of coffee and your Bible. You're ready to jump into God's Word. I regret that we can't be face-to-face, but again, we're thankful that we can be together in the way that we are. So um, let me make a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, um, obviously next week is going to be Easter. So it's not really going to be Easter. It's just kind of going to be Easter. So next Sunday is Easter Sunday according to the calendar. So um, we're going to obviously be having church this way. But we're not going to celebrate Easter until the first Sunday that we're all back together. And so whenever that Sunday is, that is going to be the most epic Easter celebration ever. Well, not ever because nothing's going to be better than the first one. But besides the first one, it's going to be the best one ever. So we're really looking forward to that. I can't wait for that day So, uh, because there's no way we can celebrate Easter and not be together. That's just, I just can't imagine us doing that. So that's what we're going to do. But remember, next week um, there's going to be resources for your family, for your children to celebrate Easter uh, games, activities for the Easter celebration. The, look for that on the MMBC Kingdom Kids page. Uh, there's also a video Siobhan posted on the Facebook page, the church Facebook page. So there's information for that. So make sure you're, if uh, you have little ones that you've been getting organized because there's some things you need to get for that celebration. And then we're going to be looking forward to uh, our wonderful time when we get together. Also, I just want to thank all of you for all of your uh, encouragement and all the wonderful ways that uh, you've made me aware of the great things that God's been doing in your life and the way he's been uh, using this situation to, uh, to grow you and press you and give you opportunities for his kingdom. And I want to encourage us all that during this time of uh, separation, we really need to be intentional about encouragement. And so it's really important that if God does something great in your life, I mean, if you, uh, if you read a great book and God works in your life or God shows you something from his word or if God confirms something amazing in your life through one of these sermons or if you have an opportunity to minister to somebody or somebody ministers to you or whatever the case may be, if it's something that will encourage your brothers and sisters in, in this faith family, then please be in intentional about uh, posting that on Facebook so that we can share that because during this time we can't have too much encouragement and I know that God's doing a lot of great things in a lot of your lives and uh, it's a great encouragement to me but I want people to know that um, through you and through your own words and perspective so be very intentional about that that would be a real blessing and uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, well, this is how I want to start this morning. I want everybody to stand up. So, yes, that's you, sir. Put your coffee down. And what is that? Donuts? Or get up. Stand up. Everybody stand up in the room. Wherever you are, your family, stand up together. And if you can, hold hands. That would be great. But just stand up and then 
somebody pray for your family, for today, for me, for the Word. I want you to have a moment of prayer there, out loud. Somebody pray out loud. If you're by yourself, great. You pray out loud. God hears you. And uh, let's take a moment and all pray together, okay? Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, and I want to thank you for your word that you've given us to be our guide and our director. I want to thank you for this Lord's Day that we have to join together in your word, Lord. I want to thank you that this is a day that you've made. It's not a day that we saw coming. It's not a day that we anticipated in any way or even imagined, but it is a day that you've made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. And, Lord, I thank you for every man, every woman, every young person, every child this morning that's tuned in, that will listen to this message and walk through the pages of your Scripture together. Lord, thank you for this opportunity before us, and I pray through the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you'll speak to us. Holy Spirit, will you speak to us this morning through your word? Will you help us to see things that apart from you we couldn't see? Would you lead and guide our, our thoughts and our emotions and uh, around, Lord, what it is you want us to see this morning? God, that we might be conformed into your image today. Thank you for this faith family. Thank you for the encouragement that we are to one another. Thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to be changed by you. Thank you that what we hear this morning is not just for our intellectual edification, but it's for our practical usefulness, that we need to know what you have to say to us today, to walk in this life and in this world. So I thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you'll do this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the book of James. This is week three. And remember, uh, this is a letter written by the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James, who initially did not believe that Jesus was who he said that he is, that he was the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, Jesus' family initially rejected that and uh, tried to come against Jesus. But there was a moment after the Lord resurrected, after that first Easter, that James and Jesus came together. Jesus sought James out, and whatever happened at that meeting, it forever changed James' life. And James became an amazing leader in the kingdom of God. He led the, the church at Jerusalem and led the first council and was just a, uh, a phenomenal man of God and leader. And 
That's really an amazing thing to think about growing up in the same household as Jesus and then following him as your Lord and Savior. I mean, I think about growing up, how many times James must have heard his mother Mary say, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? I mean, I probably wouldn't have believed in him either. It would have been really difficult, you know, to have this older brother who was just perfect in every way all the time. But nonetheless, through the power of God, James transformed, becomes a great pastor, and now his people have been dispersed because of the persecution that's come through this maniac Saul, who will eventually become the Apostle Paul, and the stoning of Stephen that's dispersed the church all over the place. And so James writes this letter to people he loves in the midst of trials. And he asks this question really to to me and you and to them. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is what do you do when what you see doesn't line up with what you believe? I mean, what do you do when you look around and your life is going in a direction, your circumstances are, are affecting you in a way that doesn't line up with what you believe? And then there becomes this tension. And that's what James is is diving into this tension that exists. And whenever we come into tension in our life, we have to sort out a way to resolve it. You know, many of you have asked me, how in the world are you doing uh, preaching to an, in, in, in an empty room? And I'll be honest with you, it's difficult, especially in the very beginning. But again, it created tension. And so I had to figure out how to sort this out. And so here's what I've done. After the very first uh, Sunday that we did this, I realized, man, i got to do something different. So what I do is I come up here on Saturday night all by myself, and I walk through the auditorium. And as I walk through the rows and the pews, I can imagine who sits in all these places. Because I look around the room and I know where everybody would be if you were here. And so it helps me to be able to pray for all of you because I just pray for who would be sitting there as I imagine in my head that you're there. And it just puts that picture in my mind of where everybody is. And so that when I'm here on Sunday mornings, I can just imagine that all of your faces are there. And as I look around, I imagine you're here. And that's how I resolve that tension. But how do we resolve tension when it's spiritual tension and circumstantial tension, when life is in a crisis and we feel all this pressure and pain and suffering and agony and we, we intellectually believe one thing, but what we're experiencing, those two things don't mix together. And we, we start to say things to ourselves like, so, so there's a good God who loves me as we're suffering? He loves me? He's for me, not against me. But the reality right now in my life is that everything seems to be falling apart. And so I don't see that God. I don't see that God that's for me. How can these two things coexist? How can God be good and my life be falling apart? How can God be for me and my life be falling apart? How can God be all-powerful and sovereign and able to change what's going on and yet not do so? How do those things 
coexist. If there's a God that can do anything, and yet in the middle of all this, he chooses to do nothing, then I'm not sure I want anything to do with him. That's what people say in their heart. But James wants us to see things from God's perspective. James wants people that he loves who are in the midst of a trial, he wants them to see things in a supernatural way, in a biblical way, in a truly Christian way. So if you have your listening guide, if you printed out your listening guide, you fill in the blanks, you can work with us here. Here's what James wants us to do. Don't look at God through your circumstances. Look at your circumstances through God. This is sort of where James is leading us. He's leading us to take our faith into our trials. Don't walk into your trials faithless and then start looking for your faith. But take your faith into your trials. See, what we must have is we must have a belief in God or an understanding of God or a theology that works in the real world because that's the world that we live in. I mean, we don't live in a, in a pain-free world. We need to have a, a theology like Jesus had, a Jesus-shaped theology. Like the Bible says, Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me, notice that in me you may have peace because in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. You see how Jesus says that? In me you can have peace. You're going to face tribulation. But in tribulation, you can be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. That's Jesus' theology. The Bible is not a message that life is going to be painless. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that there's going to be purpose in the believer's pain. That's the message of the scripture that none of our pain as a child of God is going to be purposeless that's what God wants us to know so what's the purpose well let's think about where we've been the last couple of weeks and bring all this together so far James has shown us that there's there's two two reasons that we can find joy in our trials and they're connected to what we need to know, the purpose of God in our lives in trials. So the first one is, is that pain makes us stronger. Pain makes us stronger. That's what we saw in week one. Look at your Bible in James chapter 1, verse 2. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or steadfastness. But, the patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Teleos, that word in the Greek for um, perfect. It means to be what God intended for you to be. It doesn't mean perfect like you made 100 on the test. It means to be a perfect representation of what God wanted you to be. And so what James is saying is that the trial is a testing of our faith to make us stronger. Look at what the Bible says. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 concerning this thorn that he has in the flesh. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But the Lord said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I would rather boast in my suffering or my infirmities or my illness or my weakness. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power. Do you see that? And so it's about growing stronger. Trials make us stronger. That's what we saw in week one. Then last week we talked about how pain makes us wiser. It makes us wiser. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, then let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so what James does is James is saying, listen, when you get in a trial, ask God for wisdom. Now, why does James say that? Well, now let me give you a, a principle of understanding here, okay? Every person that is wise has gone through trials. But not every person who goes through trials becomes wise. Every person that's wise has been through trials. There's no way to become a wise person apart from trials. But just because you've been through trials, just because you've been through hard things, doesn't mean you're wise. It depends on how you respond to the trial. Okay, And so James is imploring us to ask God for wisdom in the midst of a trial because in a trial we don't understand what's going on because what we see and what we believe don't line up. And so we, in order to deal with the tension, we ask God for wisdom. And when we cry out to, wisdom for, to God for wisdom, He gives us wisdom. But notice what the Bible says in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, Remember last week, for he who doubts is like a wave in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. That's a strong statement. He's a double-minded man, or remember, a double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. And we talked about how, you see, not everyone who goes through trials is wise because there's a lot of people who ask for wisdom and don't receive it from God because they're double-minded. Or maybe they don't ask at all. But the double-minded person is the person who, who wants God to bless his way, who's already made up his mind, but he's asking God for some additional information. Or he's a person who faces trials. A double-minded person is someone who goes into a trial, comes to God for help, but if God doesn't say what they want to hear or if God's wisdom doesn't make sense to them, they reserve the right to do what they think is best. That's a double-minded person. That's the sort of doubt that James is talking about. James wants us to understand that when we come into a trial, we have a tremendous opportunity to be made stronger and to be made wiser because in a trial... We see and feel and perceive things that we don't understand that don't make sense to us. And we can come to God, not, not coming to God with, with perfect faith that never doubts, but crying out to God with a genuine heartfelt desire to do what honors Him, to do what pleases Him, to obey Him even if it doesn't make sense to us. That's the person 
that he grants wisdom to, that grows wise. Mm. So according to James, what we've learned from James so far is that if we know what God's activity is in the midst of a trial, then we can find joy. We can find joy in the midst of our suffering. That's an extraordinary statement. That is so unhuman. And yet, James is just plainly laying it out for us in a way that, really, when you stop and think about it in light of the character and nature of God, it makes perfect sense. We can actually find joy in our suffering because we know that God is in the suffering with us and he's working for our good. So here's something I want you to consider. The greatest trial we can ever face is to have no trials. Now I want you to really, uh, you know, put an asterisk by that. I want you to really think about that this week. I want you to receive that as a gift from God. The greatest trial. Listen, our greatest danger is to have no danger. Because if we don't have danger, we won't cry out to God. And if we don't cry out to God, we're not going to receive what God has for us. We're not going to receive wisdom. You don't get wisdom unless you ask for wisdom. You won't grow stronger and wiser unless you walk through the trial with an understanding and a perception of what God's doing around you. All right. So as countercultural as all that is, as upside down as all of that may seem to the world in which we live, now James is going to get very specific in our text for today about certain trials that Christians will face, certain specific trials that we all need to be aware of, that there's, a, there's various trials according to the Bible that we'll, we'll fall into, uh, but these are two things that we all need to have a conversation about. And I want to warn you that what James is going to say here is it's very, very radical. Very radical. All right, James chapter 1, look at verse 9. Then, then James says, Now let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation... Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, it's, it's a little bit like the, the, the verse 9 and 10 are, are sort of like a almost like a line out of a Dr. Seuss book or something. Like you just have to decode it and figure out like, whoa, wait, wait a minute, what now? So, so let me just sort of paraphrase this for you. So what James is doing is he's coming out of this conversation about wisdom and now he's moving into some specific trials and he's saying, now let the poor person 
find joy in his riches and let the rich person find joy in his poverty. What? I told you it was going to be radical. I mean, this, this is radical. So God, according to God, poverty and prosperity are trials. Fraught with danger if we don't have the right understanding of what's going on. All right, let's get started. Number one, the peril of poverty. Now, this makes sense, I guess, because nobody likes poverty. Nobody wants poverty. So the peril of poverty. Remember, James's audience is made up of people who have been dispersed from Jerusalem, and by dispersed, I mean run out of town for fear of their lives. So understand something. They are, for the most part, at a level of poverty we will never know. We may feel some of, some of you this morning are sitting there and you've lost your job because of this pandemic. You, you don't know where your next income is going to come from and your food is starting to dwindle and maybe you're concerned about some things and those are very real and, and imminent pressures that are happening right now. But trust me, this is on a whole nother level. These people, because of the persecution that erupted overnight in Jerusalem, gathered their loved ones, probably filled what they could carry, some satchels full of whatever their most prized possessions or necessities were, and left town. They left their, fam their, their, their homes their extended family members, their businesses, they left it all behind. They didn't have time to liquidate their assets. They couldn't take them with them. It wasn't like they were in a culture where you could load it all up in your minivan and, you know, drive to the next, you know, safest place and get a hotel room. This is a whole nother level of poverty. They literally are aliens. They're nomads. And they're, they're dispersed out there, and they're really poor. Now, every one of us who's watching this morning is, is in the, the top 15% of the wealthiest people in the world. I mean, we, we don't have any understanding of, um, you know, some of us, because of our work globally, our mission work globally, we've been exposed to real extreme poverty. I mean, you know, the, the, the most uh, sort of take-your-breath-away poverty I've ever been exposed to was the time I spent in India. But there are places in the world, Yemen, uh, Malawi, where there are people that are, it's, their poverty is it's unbelievable, their poverty. But because we live in such an affluent place, in such an affluent culture, it doesn't mean that we can't struggle and, and understand what need is and poverty is. 
But here's the problem. The problem is, is that for most of us, most of the time, it makes us feel invincible. You see, we, we feel like our, our, the things that we have around us and our capacity to uh, obtain our needs makes us invincible. We feel that there will always be uh, something around us to provide for us and at different levels and in different ways. But here's the thing. When we experience loss, when suddenly something crashes out from under us, when you go from feeling invincible to suddenly vulnerable, what happens is we discover what we've really been living for. People start to to panic. They start running to the grocery store and standing in line for hours to get in, even when their cupboards and their refrigerators are full of food, but they're afraid they may not have enough. They want extra. They want to pack every nook and cranny. And when there's people, this is what I think about every time I drive by a store and there's a line outside. I know that among us and around us and within us, there are people who genuinely are in need. And I've seen in some places, I've seen some, some elderly people waiting in line to get in a store uh, that looked to me to be clearly vulnerable, and, and that broke my heart. And I felt like what should happen is that they should be able to go to the front of the line and go to the store. You know, but I see all these young, healthy people standing in line, and, you know, some senior citizen in the back of the line, and that breaks my heart. It shouldn't be that way. But it exposes us. It exposes our insecurities. It exposes our our fear. See, what happens is, is that the trial of poverty reveals the treasure of our heart. See, when, when poverty comes, it, it exposes what you treasure. And many of you have, have heard me talk about my childhood and how early on in my life I was very driven as a young man, driven in school, driven to succeed, driven to go to college. And, but it was all for the wrong motivation. My drive was, was to not be poor because I had grown up lacking so much. And, you know, I, I knew what it was like to, you know, be concerned about whether or not we were going to be able to pay the rent or we'd have a place to live or, you know, I was grateful if we, you know, there were times where a can of tuna fish or a peanut butter sandwich for dinner was, you know, was, was great. But there was always this sense of, you know, we were just one tiny little tick away from disaster. And so I was driven to sort of achieve my way out of that position. And listen, that's... Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, achievement. There's nothing wrong with being driven and having goals and setting goals and striving to meet those goals. But listen, what happens is, is that 
The trial of poverty, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, it can get you. It can get you. And our culture uh, just is, is filled with stories of people who went from the pinnacle of wealth to the depths of poverty because they were, uh, you know, the stock market crashed or their Ponzi scheme was discovered or they were thrown in jail or whatever the case may be. And what we find is that, you know, it, it reveals where we, where we place our hope or where we find our security. And so people, especially, you know, with the economy, get so wrapped up in what's going on with the economy? What's the stock market doing? See, economic loss, by default, when it comes into our life, it requires self-examination. It just does. Because the things that we need, we, we get by having money or assets. And so when we don't have those, we're fearful we're not going to have the things that we need. So what do, we, what, what do you count on? What is your hope in? What, is your, what, do you, what in your life is counted as as? Most important, what have you been most worried about, fixated on in these days of instability that we've been living in? And think about all the different ways that poverty tempts us. You know, the, the most common thing is that when poverty comes into our life, it will tempt us to, to fear and anxiety because we'll start to, uh, our heart will start to be filled with, with fear and anxiety that we, we won't have what we need but there's other things that what about the way that that poverty comes into our life and then it tempts us to to devote ourselves to the pursuit of wealth like it did me as a young man and so you know you don't you don't have to have wealth to devote yourself to the pursuit of wealth I'm living proof of that that's what I did before I became a Christian was just was motivated by not being poor but here's the thing, acquiring money can never be the remedy for our fear and anxiety. It's never going to work. But what about this? What about, when the, what about when the trial of poverty, what about when economic loss comes into our life and it tempts us to feel neglected by God? I wonder how many of us this morning have in our heart, in this time, some of you are facing some real economic challenges. And you, you know that there are people around you who love you and who are devoted to caring for you, but your pride doesn't want to rely upon them and you're not, how can you be sure that they're going to follow through and that they're going to help you and that they're going to, and, and then there's God. God, I feel a little bit neglected by you. Why have you not intervened in this situation? How could this have ever happened? I mean, how can me losing my job be good for my family? That's a great question. That's a moment where what you see and what you believe don't line up. How can economic loss be, be good for the church? 
when so many of us, when we look at our church and we think, how can this be good for our church? Lord, this is your church. And, and that, so how can this be good? Think of all the things, God, that you've, all the momentum that you've been building in us, all these things that we've, we're about to finish this, this new uh, children's center and this new educa- adult education space and, and then build a new building that we can start doing ministry and that we can meet together and that can hold us and all this momentum. And then, God, how can economic loss be good for your church? How can economic loss in your church be good for the global mission that you've called us to? How? How can we rejoice in the midst of financial hardship? How can we possibly rejoice in a shaky, unstable economy? What does wisdom look like in economic loss? Look at verse 9. This is wisdom in the midst of economic loss. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. In other words, that the word exaltation, it means height. It means let the low one rejoice in his highness. This statement is about what we can't see. It's it's when we when we see God with wisdom, with eyes of wisdom, with supernatural eyes of wisdom, the things we can then see. See, God, as we've talked about each of these weeks, sees our lives from a different perspective, an infinitely higher perspective, a way that we can't see unless God allows us to. You see, whenever we open the Bible and we start to read the Scripture, what's happening is God is inviting us in. He's inviting us into the throne room of heaven, if you will, and He's saying, let me show you the way I see. Let me show you what I see that you can't see apart from me. This is why we say that when we become a Christian, when we're born again, we receive sight. We can see. We once were blind, but now we see. This is why God, when he encountered Saul on the Damascus Road, who became the Apostle Paul, he, he, he blinded him and then took the scales off his eyes so that he could see. Because that's what God's doing here. He's letting us see what we, apart from him, could never see. Wisdom is a gift from God that enables us to see financial trials in light of spiritual realities. See, the reality is is that if you're a Christian this morning, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you are in a different position. You see, if you've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin then even in the midst of financial hardship, you can boast in your high position. This is exactly what the Scripture is saying. What high position? What do you mean? 
What I don't mean is ignore the fact that you're in financial hardship. That's not what James is telling us to do. He's saying the reality is, is that while you are in financial hardship, there's a high position that the children of God have, irregardless of their financial standing, because the gospel is true, because God has invited us in to see His, His ways from His perspective. You see, we have a high position in God. Because Jesus purchased our high position. And it can't be lost. If the stock market crashes, if the economy tanks, if you lose your job, if you're unable to pay your bills. Maybe you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from. James says, boast in what you have because what you have that's more important than what you lack is also what you cannot lose. What you possess can never be. What you possess is not only the most valuable thing you have, but it's also the most secure, stable, invincible possession that you have. Look at 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become, what's the word? Rich. Rich. Now let me ask you a question. If you've lost your job, if your bank account's at zero, maybe it's negative, if, you're, if you are fearful you're about to lose your job, or whatever your standing is, whatever your financial position is, the question that I have for you this morning is, is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 true about you? If you are a Christian, is that true? And the answer is yes. Jesus became poor so that you could be rich, rich in a way that is far greater than the way in which you currently feel poor. James says, let the poor man who knows Jesus boast in his riches. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin for us, become poor for us, that we might become rich. Rich how? That we would become rich, not in a financial way, but in a righteousness way. We would become rich in a way that money could not buy. The perfect life of Jesus in salvation becomes ours. The, the, the balance in his account is transferred into our account and our depleted, deplorable, uh, amassed, Sin is deposited into his account. You see, and since no amount of money in the entire world can purchase our eternity, 
then regardless of how full or empty our checking account may be, we have every reason in the universe to celebrate. Yes. You see, it's, it's the physical bank account versus the spiritual bank account. And God's saying, I want you to see not the reality that you're experiencing around you. I want you to see the reality that's above that, that is that. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how, uh, you know, there's a lot of really, really wealthy people in the world today. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, the CEO and founder of Amazon. Now, he lost $10 billion last year in 2019. So we should all, you know, let's be sad for him. He lost $10 billion with a B. It knocked him all the way down to $115 billion. But don't worry, just about the time you're feeling bad, so far in 2020, he's the only one of the top ten richest people in the world that hasn't lost money. Everyone else has lost money, but not him. He's actually made $5 billion since all this chaos has ensued. So I did some calculations, and... Uh, I just want you to I want you to get a I want you to get a picture of how wealthy a person who is worth 120 billion dollars really is. So he makes $2,489 per second. Every second of every day he makes just under $2,500. So his earning is $149,000 an hour. Now, I don't know what kind of job you have. I don't know what kind of salary package you have. I don't know what kind of incentives or benefits you have. But $149,000 an hour or no, $149,000 a minute. That's $9 million an hour. So his hourly wage is $9 million. That's him. Now, I just, I just want you to, to, to think about how one person's wealth is more than the, the entire GDP of multiple, multiple countries if you took the, the smallest, lowest 50, 60 countries in the world, added them all together, they wouldn't even come close to his net worth. Wouldn't even come close. Wouldn't even come close. And he's just one man. But what does the Bible say about that? Well, for example, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul is talking about us sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. If we're His children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. Now, that ought to be good news. That when we become a, a child of God, we become heirs of, of what Christ is set to inherit. Well, that's great. 
That's amazing. That's wonderful. But what is that to be exact? Because I'm still still thinking about $149,000 a minute. Well, let me give you some perspective. Because if if you think $149,000 a minute is a lot of money, well, it is a lot of money. But if you think that that's like the most money you can imagine, well, or the, the most value you could imagine, forget that. We're, we're co-heirs with Christ. Here's what the Bible says. We're, look at this. That in these last days, God's spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. So we're co-heirs with Christ, and He's heir of all things, so we're set to inherit all things. All things. Now, 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 let's just think about this for a minute. I want you to, wherever you are right now, just look around you. I want you to look around you, and I want you to look at everything you see, and I want you to imagine everything, wherever you're at your house, in your house, on your property, the, the car in your driveway, whatever it is, all those, look at all those things, and I want you to understand Jeff Bezos doesn't own any of those things. There's billions and billions and trillions of things in the world that he doesn't own and will never own and couldn't own everything. But God says we're co-heirs with Christ and Christ is set to inherit everything. You see, your, your bank balance doesn't determine your wealth. I want you to understand this. From God's perspective, those who have been adopted into his family are ridiculously, insanely wealthy. Wealthy. Beyond our wildest imagination. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, as children of God... We're set to inherit. See, we're already co-heirs. In other words, it's not like we have to do something to, you know, make sure we're in the right place at the right time or achieve the right things. No, no. That's already been done. The minute we were adopted into the family of God, we were written into the will, so to speak. And so that's our inheritance. It is ours. And nothing can change that. But in the meantime... When we still think, well, that's then, but I feel so poor today. The Bible says, now, wait a minute. You can run into the throne room of grace. You can approach God in your time of need and find mercy. Mercy. Listen, you know what mercy is? Mercy is too expensive for any amount of money to purchase. Do you know what Jeff Bezos can't purchase? He can't purchase mercy. With all of the billions of dollars that he is, if you took all the wealth in all the world and amassed it all together in one pile at one time, it couldn't buy one drop of mercy. Money can't buy mercy. But you know what the child of God has? Unlimited access to mercy. That's reason to rejoice. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen to what God's telling us. 
in the midst of our need, in the midst of what seems to be out of control, in the midst of what doesn't seem to be dependable, in the midst of financial hardship, we can rejoice because we're rich. Let the low man exalt in his high position. So that's the peril of poverty. Now that at least somewhat makes some sense. Maybe. What about this? What about the peril of prosperity? The peril of prosperity. Look at verse 10. But then James goes on. He says, but the rich in his humiliation... Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Now, so many people get this wrong, misinterpret this, don't understand this. Let, let me just help us here, okay? Look, if, if you own a car, or maybe you don't own it outright, but if you make payments on it so you possess it, if you slept in a bed last night with a roof over your head, then you've got to understand that you are among the wealthiest people in the world. The vast majority of people in this world have no means to ever even dream of owning motorized transportation or sleeping with a roof over their head that's anything other than a thatch roof. There's a peril in prosperity. And this is what we got to understand here is that the Bible never says that possessing wealth is intrinsically evil. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being wealthy because, listen, if, if, if since we live in this country and we have access to all the things that we do, well, the, I didn't choose to be born here. I just was. And so we're just here. And so God is, is not condemning us for what we have. That's not what's happening here. See, sometimes the Bible presents the wealthy as evil, those who oppress the poor. But then other times the Bible present, pre presents the wealthy as people who are under the blessing of God. I mean, think about Job who we're studying on Wednesday nights. Job was extraordinarily wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was crazy wealthy. Zacchaeus in the New Testament was wealthy. So there's a lot of wealthy people that God does amazing things in their life. Now here's what we know about what the Bible says about wealth. Is that wealth can be a very dangerous trap. And that we need to be careful. And we need to understand wealth. Because in fact, the Bible would say that wealth in many ways is more dangerous than ad in adversity. Now, why is wealth more dangerous than adversity? Because wealth is more deceptive. Deceptive. That's what the Bible would teach. Look at these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
Then he goes on, Paul says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Those are scary verses. This is why it's so hard to be a Christ follower in America because of the deceitfulness of riches that surround us and, and the, all of the things that are always seeking to snag us up with regards to wealth and possessions. But notice what, notice how James is trying to steer our understanding of wealth. Look at verse 11. For no sooner, talking about the wealthy, has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. See, what James wants us to know, what God wants us to know from his perspective, what he's letting us in on in the midst of difficulty, that earthly riches are fleeting. And the reason they're fleeting is because they're ultimately worthless. I mean, what would it what would he gain a man if he, if, he, if he gained the whole world but lost his own soul? You see, what, what, it ultimately, what good ultimately is wealth? It's of no ultimate use. It's only good to be used and stewarded now in this life. It does no good in the life to come. It won't last. It doesn't transcend. Here's what the uh, psalmist says. Psalm 49, do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. You see that? That's a biblical understanding of, of wealth. And so what we need to understand is that some are wealthy, some are poor in the family of God. But spiritually, all are equally rich. But with regards to this physical, uh, material possession thing, we need to understand, we need to have a right perspective of it so that we understand how to utilize it. If we have much, it's incumbent upon us to know how to steward that and how to use that. You see, the purpose of of teaching about stewardship is not to get your money. No. It's to ensure that your money doesn't get you. That's the purpose. That's why we need to have these conversations. That's why this is important. Is so that we realize that, listen, there shouldn't be a situation where there's some who are fearful of how they're in the family of God where there's some who are fearful that they're not sure how they're going to eat tomorrow. And then there's some that feel exalted because of their possessions. No, 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 no. Do not find your security in your possessions. Do not make your possessions an idol or you'll lose them. You'll find yourself in misery. Don't do that. We're going to talk about what happens when we start tempting God in certain ways in the weeks to come. But listen, no, no, those, the possessions that we have, no matter how large or how small, 
are given to us to be utilized for the kingdom of God and his purposes. So listen, why, why does, you know, how, so how are we to boast in our humiliation as rich people? Well, here's what that means. That means that what we're boasting in our humiliation, what humiliation? Our humiliation. Because we're talking about, remember, spiritual. Think about spiritual riches. You see, we, we boast in our humiliation because we're aware of our spiritual poverty. James wants us to remember that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That we were blind to God's worth and His beauty. That we're incapable of responding to God in faith and repentance. That we were blasphemers. That we were God's enemies. We were alienated from Him. We were hostile towards Him. We did evil deeds. We were sons and daughters of our father, the devil. And God's righteous wrath was upon us. We were hopeless to fix our own situation. No amount of money could purchase our forgiveness. But then what happened? You see, in our humiliation, we may have had great possessions during that time, or we may not have. Or, but the point is we were all spiritual beggars. But God entered into that picture. God entered into your story and my story. He entered into our story. And he changed the story. He rewrote the story. He, he, he wrote in a new narrative. He, he put a twist into the story that nobody could have seen coming, that nobody could have predicted. If you think the pandemic caught the world off guard, that's nothing compared to the resurrection. That's nothing compared to the Lord Jesus showing up and living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death so that we might be exalted above measure because of His life and His goodness and His propitiation for our sin. So the Bible says that in the midst of our humiliation, in the midst of all that we were and our depravity and our need, but God, but God had something to say about that. But God had something to write into that story. But God had a different narrative, a different thought process, a different line, a different ending. The Bible says, but God, who is rich in mercy, which is the most valuable thing in the world that no amount of money can buy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Don't you see what God has done? God has entered into our poverty. He's entered into our need. He entered into our pathetic, pitiful, hopeless situation, and he opened the floodgates of heaven and poured into our account, deposited righteousness on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ into our account that we might be the richest people the universe could ever know. Listen, we, listen, all that we possess today, what you possess today in salvation, you did not purchase that. You did not earn that. You did not save up enough money for that. 
No, no earthly treasure can afford that. Jeff Bezos couldn't afford that in a billion years. He couldn't afford that. No one can. But Jesus purchased it for us. And then he freely gave it. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how low you feel, no matter how broken your situation seems, no matter how scary your future looks, no matter how impossible your needs appear, no matter how much you have, no matter how little you have, no matter how worried you are, no matter how anxious you are, no matter how hopeless the voice in your head says that all of this is, no matter how pitiful the voices around you say that you are, Listen, you can have joy. You can have joy today in this moment because Christ Jesus is our Savior. We are rich. We are rich, rich in righteousness, rich in mercy, rich in the greatest, most valuable things the universe has ever known. I know that that sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy to the world around us. I know that when you walk down the street, walk in your neighborhood, or go to work, or stand in line at a store, or whatever the case may be, that you're surrounded by people who would think that what I just said is insanity. Listen, they may see you in your circumstances. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you this morning feel like you're in humiliation, that you're pathetic and pitiful. I want you to understand something. If you're in Christ, the world may see you in humiliation, but they're wrong. They're wrong. God wants you to see with his eyes that you have been exalted in Christ Jesus who has been appointed to be the heir of all things and you are a co-heir with him according to the promise of God you are written into the will of the God who owns the universe the universe and we can rejoice in that so listen hold your head up high child of God listen raise up today let the, let the Word of God just pour encouragement into your spirit. Let your Father in heaven fill you with His love. See with His eyes. Let your Father's love put a smile on your face in the midst of what's going on around you. Because no matter what trial may come, no matter how the world decides to label you, the status gifted to you in Christ is the only one that matters. You're not who the world says that you are. You're who your maker says that you are. Your status is according to him. You're rich beyond your wildest dreams. This life is but a vapor. So you see, this isn't about us 
denying the reality of the hardship around us. It's about seeing a greater reality, a greater truth. How much does God love us? Let me count the ways. One of which is he loves us enough that somehow before the foundation of the world, he in his providence and sovereignty knew that I would be preaching on this text in this time. And for that, I am so very grateful to him. May God bless you today and encourage you today. Listen, I, before I pray and we end, I want there's a link below. If you go down on the YouTube page or on the website or we send out emails, there's a link to a song that I think is a, a good way to sort of respond. I meant to do this last week. That you know, I want you to to have a response. And this I believe would be a good way. So you listen to the words of this song and let God just minister this message into your heart. I sure do love you. I sure do miss you. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the riches that you have abounded upon us, Lord. Thank you for insight and wisdom into a greater reality. Thank you for the opportunity to know what's actually true in a world where we cannot find anything to, to believe on or to trust in. You show up with your word through your son and you give us truth that will never fail us. Wisdom that will always lead us and guide us. We are so blessed. So, Lord, thank you for our opportunity today and in the days to follow to rejoice in our trials because we know you're at work. And we know that anything that makes us stronger and wiser is good because you are good. And so we love you today. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. Have a great day.